And we're continuing our journey through the gospel of Mark. Several years ago, I was in Palestine, and I had the opportunity to go to Bethlehem in Palestine, uh, the birth town of Jesus. And we were visiting different locations, but Julia and I had the opportunity to go to uh, the Church of the Nativity, which is where they claim Jesus was born. And all these things in the Middle East are by proximity, but it was, it's beautiful. So we go to this cathedral, and it's run jointly by Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Armenian Apostolic, and Syrian Orthodox Church authorities. So it's this beautiful picture of church unity running this single site. And so we're standing in line uh, to enter the Grotto of the Nativity, the birthplace of Jesus. They have this little cradle set up. And the whole cathedral is just this beautiful environment. You can see it. And as we waited, this Greek Orthodox priest came forward with a group of nuns, his posse. And uh, he, he's looking, they're looking at this icon of Mary and they start singing. Now, we don't know what they're saying, but it was beautiful. Like They had beautiful voices and it was surreal. We're in this beautiful cathedral, the incense, you know, rays of light, breaking through stained glass, it felt otherworldly. But this serene moment was interrupted as a huge argument ensued between the Roman Catholic priests who were on duty and this Greek Orthodox priest. And apparently they were disputing liturgical practices. And this ended up in the forceful removal of this priest and the nuns from the cathedral. What is the deal with that? You know, when internal disputes like this erupt within Christianity or any religion for that matter, it's ugly. It's disenfranchising. And unfortunately, there's this inherent ugliness to our passage today. We enter into further disputes within the ancient groups of Judaism. Now, last week, we saw the conflict between Jesus and the highest religious leaders of Judaism in that day reach its tipping point. And after what Jesus did in the temple, you know, shutting it down, calling it defunct, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders publicly confronted Jesus. And in response, Jesus aimed an entire parable at them, calling them out for both their corruption and their intent to kill him. Things are intensifying, and so they leave, but the confrontation is by no means done. We're told this same group now send a group of Pharisees and Herodians uh, to try to trap Jesus. And so the conflict is starting to take a life of its own. It's drawing in more and more groups and more and more people. And today's passage, it involves three groups within ancient Judaism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. But the issues that each of them bring to Jesus are polarizing. They reveal a conflict they have with Jesus himself, but also conflicts they have with one another. And so as these conflicts Uh, arise and we see them become more evident between the groups, here's what we see, a big holy mess. And honestly, this is the sort of thing that makes people say, why would I want to get involved with organized religion in any capacity if it can't even agree within itself? And here's the reason why we shouldn't write off Christianity as an organized religion or because of the conflicts we see within its origins in Judaism. Jesus doesn't stand above us, removed from the mess of the life, but he's found within these very conflicts. The Lord himself didn't remove himself from the conflicts, but entered into them. And so as we look at these three distinct interactions between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, there's one big idea that emerges. And if true, if this idea is true, it makes living within the mess worth it. 
So this is the big idea we're going to focus on in our passage this morning. Jesus is our solid ground in an unstable world. Jesus is our solid ground in an unstable world. So open up your Bibles if you have one uh, to Mark chapter 12. Everything's also going to be on the screen. We're going to start in verse 13. And they, uh, the religious leaders seeking to destroy Jesus, sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the ways of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Let's start here. Who are the Pharisees? We've seen them in the Gospels before, but here's a quick recap. The Pharisees were a separatist party. They separated themselves uh, from other Jews who they thought were too impure and certainly from the rest of the world. And they uh, were people who devoutly upheld the scriptures. I guarantee you most of the Pharisees knew the scriptures better than every person in this room, maybe with the exception of a few. And they, in addition to the scriptures, had their traditions of the elders to protect them from ever dishonoring the scriptures. And so with their scriptures and their traditions, they took life very seriously and God's law very seriously. And as a separatist party, they believed that the temple, the center of Judaism, needed reform. And guess who were the majority of the priests that they believed needed reforming? The Sadducees. See, the, the Pharisees, they expected the resurrection of the dead. Uh, they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, and they believed that fidelity to the law in an uncompromising way applied throughout Judaism was the only way to usher in the Messiah's reign. But as a whole, the Pharisees actually didn't have very much political influence. Even though they're all over the Gospels, and even though they were respected within ancient Judaism, they were one of the smaller groups, emerging and growing, but not the most powerful. And so the Pharisees, they would separate themselves from others while remaining within society, hoping for political reform that the Messiah would bring. The true king, that's who they're waiting for, the true king of Israel who would be better than Caesar. So naturally, they come to Jesus and they ask a politically loaded question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we do it or not? And the tax they're bringing up here is a daily tax. Uh, the tax costs the average person their entire daily wage. Try to imagine that. Everything you make in your day, gone to a daily tax. Needless to say, this was a uh, massively popular tax uh, among the average people uh, because of its great cor you know, corruption and oppression. People just loved this tax. It's a great thing to bring up in a public debate. So in other words... The Pharisees, you know, they're merely asking, where should our loyalties lie? Caesar or God? Paganism or Judaism? Corruption or purity? Are you with us or are you against us, Jesus? And in their minds, it's an either-or situation, and it's a trap because it puts Jesus in a precarious situation. If Jesus unequivocally supports the tax, he's going to lose the respect of the people. Ah, you're just another pawn of Caesar. But if Jesus challenges the tax and says you shouldn't pay it, it'll bring down Roman rule on him for uh, creating disorder. So what does he do? Look at verse uh, 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, 
Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, Jesus, he knows they're putting on a front. And so he, he calls them out. But he'll also play along. So he asks for a denarius and he says, whose likeness is this? And the answer is obvious. You know, if I took out a 25 cent coin, a 25 cent piece, and I said, whose likeness is this? You'd say, it's clearly a moose, our supreme master and overlord, obviously. <laughs> no, you'd say it's her majesty, the queen, and we would never dare dump her tea in the ocean, uh, obviously. Americans, hopefully you got that joke. Uh, and the Pharisees, they say, you know, Caesar, it's Caesar, obviously Jesus. But the image on the coin specifically was of Tiberius Caesar. The, 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 the governor and the emperor at that time. And it also had an inscription on the coin that said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Sound familiar? Making a claim to be a son of God. He promoted himself as the son of a divine being. And so Jesus responds and he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God." And we have to take note of what Jesus asks when he asks for the coin. Whose likeness is this? It's actually a very specific word. It's a throwback to Genesis of humanity being made in the likeness or image of God. And this is then what we should hear Jesus saying. If the image is Caesar's, it belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him. But you are not made in the image of Caesar. Your ultimate loyalty is not to Caesar. You bear the likeness of God. So give to God what belongs to God. Caesar can have his coins. But God deserves your life, your allegiance, your ultimate loyalty. What we should hear Jesus saying is you can honor your rulers and your governors. You can pay these taxes so far as it does not run contrary to honoring God. But if you're ever forced to choose between the two, God is your authority because God is Lord of all, even Caesar. So give him his coins. And the crowds, they marvel because Jesus, he's advocating both for order and reform. You know, he's not like the zealots in his day who were calling for anarchy and a violent revolution. But neither is he advocating for keeping the status quo, just keeping things as they are in Roman culture. In the midst of this, he's actually calling for a deeper allegiance to God. And the Pharisees, they're silenced because Jesus' political vision is one that neither submits to Caesar's claims of being a divine being, nor one that dishonors his rule. And Jesus actually agrees with them. He says, we do need a true and better king than Caesar. But in their silence, another group emerges, the Sadducees. They come forward, and and Mark writes in verse 18 that they came to him, uh, the Sadducees came to him, who say, there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if (coughs) a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. First took a wife, and then he died, left her no offspring. And the second took her and died and left her no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as her wife. Awkward situation, Jesus. Tell us what's going to happen here. 
Well, first, who are the Sadducees? What are they all about? Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees had far more political influence in society. They had their hands on the levers of power. Uh, they were Jerusalem-based. Many of them were a part of the Sanhedrin, the highest court of Judaism, um, and they were generally very wealthy and politically quietist. They didn't want to rock the boat. They liked to stay under the, <coughs> the radar of Rome because right as they stood, power worked in their favor. They had all the influence. So they actually colluded with Rome and collaborated with Rome to keep order because they liked being wealthy and having power. And Mark notes that they denied the resurrection. And as uh, the children's tale goes, uh, the Sadducees denied the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Wah, wah. They denied the afterlife. <laughs> Waking up slowly with me. Welcome to the morning. Uh, they denied the afterlife. They denied uh, angels and demons or any sort of spiritual realm. They only believed in the empirical here and now and what you could learn from the first five books of the Bible, the Torah alone. One scholar uh, who I've, I can't remember where I read it, I should have wrote down, uh, summarizes them aptly. Uh, the Sadducees seem to have had little future hope at all, not untypical of people who are very comfortable in this life. So, unlike the Pharisees, who wanted both religious and political reform, the Sadducees just want things to stay as they are. They want the here and now. And so they don't come to Jesus with a politically loaded question because they don't want to rock the boat. They come to Jesus with a theologically loaded question. Why? To undermine the Pharisees' call for reform and to justify their own ways of living. And so Jesus, he replies to them in verses 24 through 27. He said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. If you want to know more about that, Roger will tell you everything about that. Uh, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the least Canadian response from Jesus ever. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't soften it. What does he say? Here's what he says. You're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You are quite wrong. In other words, very, very, very wrong. Jesus calls the Sadducees out on trying to construct a theology that justifies keeping the status quo, keeping things the way they currently are. Their theology conforms to the culture and the power of the world rather than challenging it. But not only is their theology self-servicing, or self-service, uh, it is flat out wrong because God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Those presumed dead like uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of Israel, Jesus says they're still living with God. They're still alive. And so the Sadducees are both wrong about life after death and about life here and now. They're missing it because there's a greater power available to them than the powers of politics and influence and being popular in culture or the power of the here and now. And so they too are silenced. But in their silence, another steps forward. A single man, a scribe, 
an expert, a specialist in the law of God. And they were perhaps in this time the most respected group within Judaism, the scribes. And he sees what's going on, the Pharisees and the scribes debating about what it means to be faithful to God, how we seek the kingdom in the here and now, and how they're always trying to, you know, undermine each other. And so he sees the dispute and he says, let's find a middle way that we can all agree on. Let's find some common ground. So look at verse 28 and 34. He asked Jesus, what commandment is the most important of all? You know, nothing quite like a man with the ancient equivalent of a PhD coming to you and saying, how would you summarize all of God's law, all 613 commandments? How would you summarize it? And in the midst of this debate about politics and religion and power, the scribe, he's essentially saying, what really matters? What can we unify ourselves around? Have you ever heard that question before in a debate? Mark continues. Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one neighbors as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Here we receive what's known as the summary of the law. It's beautiful. It's fundamental to the movement of Christianity. You want to know what God's all about? Loving him with everything you have and loving neighbors with everything you have. And this pleases the scribe. He only adds that to do this is better than burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, this is more central to what it means to follow God than temple. This is a revolutionary thing the scribe is saying. That loving God and loving neighbor is more fundamental to being accepted with God and being right with him than going to temple and offering sacrifices. And Jesus, he replies with something we haven't seen in the gospel before. It's pretty surprising. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. But it also implies you're not in. You're close but it's not close enough. You're still not all the way. And this especially uh, should be a wake-up call for us. Those of us uh, who strive to be kind and good and moral people who try to make an impact in the city. You're close, but do you love God? Do you give him all that you've got? And do you think, hey, if there is a God... I've been close enough. He'll see that. He'll affirm that. See, you're close, but you're not close enough. Now, all the groups in our passage do share something in common. It looks like a bit of a smattering, but there's, there's something here holding it together. All of them are looking for stability. The Pharisees, once Rome is overthrown, then we'll have stability. Then we'll have the kingdom of God. 
the Sadducees, the Romans give us stability, so let's discredit all of the groups that challenge that, and then we'll have stability. The scribe, when we can all agree on the essentials, when we can find that middle ground, we'll all have stability. And all of us long for stability. A recent study was conducted at the University of Waterloo, and the researchers asked half of their volunteers to sit in slightly wobbly chairs next to a slightly wobbly table. Would be a wonderful experience. And uh, then another group were asked to sit in chairs next to tables that looked physically identical but weren't wobbly. And so once seated, uh, the participants were asked to judge the stability of a variety of celebrity couple relationships, you know, like Brangelina, Kimye, and Billery. Uh, and so the question was, uh, how likely are they to remain together? It turns out that tinkering with the feeling of physical stability leads to perceptions of social instability. So the people who were sitting in the wobbly chairs and tables ranked these couples as more likely to break up than those whose furniture didn't wobble. So, practical application, if you're currently in a relationship and you're questioning its stability, maybe check your chair out first. Uh, <laughs> but what was more intriguing is how, they asked the next question, how important is stability in your own relationship? And it turns out that those sitting at the wonky furniture ranked the importance of stability in their relationship higher than those who weren't in uh, shaky furniture, which showed that even a small amount of environmental wobbliness can promote a desire for an emotional rock to cling to, to latch on to something to make you feel stable. So if it's a relationship, as the question proposed, that really matters and it really needs to be stable because the world out there feels unstable. And that's the danger. When we sense instability, be it political or theological or interpersonal, what will we cling to? The Pharisees, they cling to their political religious values, and they do it by comparing and contrasting themselves to others. After all, in, in trying to trap Jesus, what they're really saying is, we've got it right, he's got it wrong. And what will they gain by doing that? They'll feel emotionally stable amidst an unstable political climate. And the Sadducees are doing the same thing, comparing and contrasting, but their stability is found in the current political climate. And it's the Pharisees who make them feel unstable, so what do they do? They try to discredit their beliefs, because if they can discredit that group, then they feel a sense of stability. And the scribe sees these groups doing this, and he feels the instability. And so he tries to find emotionally stabi uh, emotional stability by saying, what really matters? What is the middle ground? What is the higher ground? You see, he's justifying himself. I've got it right. They've got it wrong. And we are not above this. When we sense instability, what do we do? On the matter of politics, let's start there, because that'll be fun. When a party uh, you don't support has the majority of power, where do you go to find stability? Do you turn to a group of naysayers who... Uh, share your grievances? Do you put your hope and efforts into the next election cycle? Or when the power, party in power misuses their power, uh, when you get a sense of political instability, where do you go for your stability? Do you find it by saying, well, at least it's not the conservatives, or at least it's not the, the liberals, or at least it's not the NDP, which you know, will never happen. But uh, in other words, that's as political as I get, don't worry. You take an unstable situation 
and you try to imagine an even more unstable situation, and suddenly you feel some relief. Ah, it's not so bad after all. On the matter of theology, how well do you sit with not having every single answer? Don't get me wrong. Some answers in the scriptures are cut and dry. Like Jesus saying to the Sadducees, the resurrection is a matter of fact. You're wrong. There are some things we can know with certainty, but there are plenty of other issues within Christian faith where disagreement can happen. Baptism is a good one. The end times, another great one. How comfortable are you with the disagreement? You know, if someone disagrees with you in your heart, do you try to belittle them somehow to empty the weight of their perspective? Or do you just ignore it? Or do you try your best to find every single answer possible so that you can feel theoretically or cognitively stable? But of course, we're mostly Canadians. Uh, we're more like the scribes in this passage. We're the ultimate middle grounders. We're the centrists. We're the apologizers. I'm sorry, that was too harsh. Uh, so I'm going to catch up, Kate. Thank you. We're peacekeepers, and we pride ourselves on this. And what happens when people reject this middle ground that we've worked so hard to establish? What happens when people rock this culture of, of tolerance, for example, that we've worked so hard to establish? What do we do? How do we handle it? Well, in our society, we attack the person's character. There's something morally wrong with them. They cause us some instability, and so we find our stability by creating a group that's acceptable to hate. We bully the bullies. We isolate the intolerant. We separate from differing opinions, and we gossip, and we slander while we're at it. And that's how we find stability. But here's an even deeper problem with how we can try to find stability. In these sort of conflicts, political, uh, theological, conflict-avoiding in the name of peacekeeping, we can come to Jesus, but we use him to confirm our own take and perspective. If we want to discredit Jesus like the Pharisees, we do so by forcing Jesus to say something that we know we won't like. And trust me, if you read the Bible, you can find it. But that way, we can say, no, -uh, I don't want anything to do with him. He's wrong. And so we came to him to use him to justify not having to come to him. Or the Sadducees, we can emphasize parts of Scripture, but neglect the whole. We'll avoid the parts that rub us the wrong way. Then that way, our lives are never actually challenged. They never have to change. The status quo never has to be rocked. We'll compromise and conform and work diligently to be more acceptable in culture's eyes than actually have to listen to what the Word of God says. Or, we just focus on what we deem as the essentials. We say, ah, you know, I can have Jesus, but I don't need church. You know, I, I, you know like it's just about social justice. I, I don't need uh, salvation in the sense of forgiveness and sins. We, we choose our essentials. We focus on that. And we're coming close, but we're not all the way there. You see, all of these approaches to Jesus. It's nothing short of trying to conform Jesus into our own image rather than us becoming conformed to his image. Because what we discover in this passage is that Jesus does have an opinion in these issues. 
And he wants to help us navigate these tensions. He doesn't want us to avoid conflict. Sorry, Canada. He wants us to head straight into it and find him there. He wants to work through the conflict with us. And he knows how deep our desire for stability runs. He knows our psychological need for emotional stability. He knows that we're turning to politics or a truncated theology or anything to try to find a sense of stability in an unstable world. Thank God our passage ends with verses 35 through 37. That's where we're going to find our stability this morning. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. What Jesus is trying to drive home here is that the Christ, the Messiah, is no ordinary king. Yes, he will come from the lineage of King David. Yes, he will fulfill the promises that God made that there will be an everlasting throne. But he is also David's Lord. He stands over David just like God. What Jesus is saying is if you get that, if you get who the Christ is, in other words, if you get who I really am, then you'll discover the internal, emotional uh, stability you're seeking to find in this world, and you'll also receive a promise that I will make this world stable. Think about our passage. Each group has their issue. Caesar, the resurrection, the law. And in each of these issues, they come to Jesus and they miss him at the same time. They want him to solve the problem, to take their side, to give them stability, but they miss that he's the solution. Jesus is a better king than Caesar because he's the true king. He makes no false claim about himself. He truly is the son of God and he doesn't leverage his power to oppress like Caesar. He uses his power to serve and liberate us. And so what do we gain by giving him our deepest allegiance, by honoring him above all things? The promise of a stable world. We have a good king who will faithfully bring us into his eternal kingdom, which cannot be shaken. But this good king also says in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. There's nothing status quo about the power of this king. His power brings life from death. As Paul writes, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So, so no matter what you face on this side of eternity, no matter what's going on around us, even if our bodies decay, and they will, we can't be robbed of the power that is giving us life and that will raise us to eternal life. So what do we gain if we give Jesus our deepest allegiance? A stable power that can't be defeated. Finally, Jesus is the true and better king because he's the fulfillment of the law. He lived the perfect life of loving God and loving neighbor, a life, if we're honest with ourselves, that we can never fully attain no matter how hard we try. We might get close, but not close enough. But Jesus, he fulfills all the requirements of the law so that our relationship with God doesn't depend upon the law or how well you fulfill what God asks of you. 
We're set right with God. We're made acceptable in his sight because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything that we have done or will do. And so what do we gain if we give Jesus our lives? Deep internal stability. Because nothing can tarnish our relationship with God. Nothing can take away our new identity as children of God. You see, Jesus, he's the true and better king. He gives us a promise of a kingdom that can't be shaken, a power that can't be defeated, a deep internal and emotional coherence as God's children. That's the stability Jesus offers in an unstable world. Where are you going for your stability? can't beat that. And have you come close to this stability? Have you sensed it but never received it? The only way to find this sort of stability in our incredibly unstable world is to come to our true king and repent and give him our allegiance above all things. Edward Mote said it more beautiful than I ever could, so I'll end with this line from his hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand.